0: Good morning. This is Jean Abshire, co-host of the International Power Hour. I'm here with my colleague Cliff Staten. We'd like to welcome you to the show this morning. We're going to be talking about different sort of uh, events that are in the news this week. Um, we're going to we're going to begin with Russia, then look at some leadership changes on the African continent, then uh, move on to uh, the situation in Israel, and then Syria, and then uh, finally move around to Venezuela. And so we have a lot uh, a lot on our agenda this morning. And I think Cliff, that we're going to begin talking about. Russia,
1: Yes, one of the areas we haven't spoken much about in the, what, six weeks we've been on the air? This is our seventh week, is Russia, and Russia's in the news quite a bit, uh, given given, uh, the uh, revelations and the indictments against uh, Russians in terms of their interference into the election process in the United States. But I think it's a good place to start is to talk a little bit about Putin. Um, When I teach foreign policy... One of the things I like to do is to look at uh, the, the background of the foreign policy decision maker, his view of the world, events that affected him. And I think to me that gives some insight into understanding, in, our, in this case, Russian foreign policy under Putin.
0: Yeah, I think you said something actually uh, kind of critical there that, that might be easy to miss. Um, his Background, uh, in in some political systems, certainly the more democratic ones, uh, there tend to be a larger number of foreign policy makers. But in more authoritarian systems, and Russia certainly has to be considered one of those. Uh, Absolutely, today. which to it,
1: me means his own. Personal values, worldview plays more of a role even than, than it would, it say, in the United States. Right, with, it gets to be a v-
0: hyper-narrow circle in authoritarian systems like Russia. So it really is heavily about <clears throat> Vladimir Putin himself.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah. So if you um, look at Putin's background, you probably know that uh, during the old Soviet Union days, he served in the KGB. And he was very proud, nationalist, proud of the fact that the Soviet Union was a major actor on the world stage and uh, was very, very proud of that. So the Cold War comes to an end, and he is in Dresden, Germany, when it comes to an end. And if you follow Putin's career since then and listen to some of the things he said, it was clear this event had a profound impact on him. He saw this as... The beginning of a U.S. dominated world, if you want to use an old phrase, the unipolar moment. Yeah, absolutely. And he saw this as the decline of Soviet Union slash Russia as a major player in global affairs.
0: Psychologically, that's, I think, really a big deal for a lot of Russians, not, not just Absolutely. Putin. Um, but certainly, I think it has to be um, taken heavily into consideration for, for Putin specifically, as you said. Um, it is uh, hard, realistically, psychologically, to go from being one of the great superpowers feared by a significant portion of the world um you know being considered a menace
1: and playing for, a role in everything and in the world
0: absolutely everything um to being you know considered a third-rate power um, which you know really after the collapse of the of the soviet union that the transition uh, out of state control of of everything, the command economy and all that. That was a rough, rough ride. Um, yes. The Russian economy really, really suffered. And of course, um, there's more to power than just economics, but that's a big part of it. And, and,
1: and Putin also correctly realized this was a period in which the US was, was going to play the dominant role. Yeah. And he began to see, especially during the Bush administration, the Bush administration acted very unilaterally, especially in the Middle East, mm-hmm. Many of our own allies opposed some of our actions in the u s and in the Middle East, and Putin saw this as just another example of Western dominance, and that Russia could do little to actually prevent this so the interesting thing which is, was
0: new and bad again for them.
1: absolutely. the interesting thing then in two thousand and seven, he was in Munich and gave a talk and This is not covered much, but this really defines what some people call the Putin doctrine, in which he discussed this unipolar moment, the dominance of the United States and its ability to act unilaterally without consulting allies over the objections of Russia and so on. And he pledged in that speech the purpose of Russian foreign policy is to make it difficult for the United States to act unilaterally, to oppose the United States on virtually every issue. And if you look and see what he's done since that time, he certainly acted in that manner. So he sees the Russian role as in opposition to this Western-dominated U.S. world, and his role is to attack the United States, to try to blunt U.S. foreign policy wherever wherever the Russians can.
0: So to restore Russian greatness, which is his goal, ultimately I think you know there's kind of two ways you can you can come out on top. You can either outcompete somebody, and you know pass them, or you can pull them down, <laughs> um, or you can do a combination of both. Um, and and the various um, tactics that we have seen you know, grow out of that strategy. I think we definitely see him trying to pull down the West with the U.S. at the front.
1: Yes, and it clearly, as you said, he plays he plays the nationalist card, which is quite common for authoritarian leaders to do so. I mean, you know, the Russian economy is not in the best shape. It's, it, it's not in very good shape, and quite often we need to, and the U.S. becomes the bad guy, and we're going to get we're going to focus on external enemies and to try to bring Russian nationalism to the front. And he's a big spokesperson for Russian nationalism. Yeah,
0: he is. Russia is a petrostate, um, <laughs> and I and so like with all I mean they certainly have a, some some other things going, but their economy does revolve very heavily around oil. Um, and so uh, as as oil prices fluctuate, so does their economic strength. Some years ago, when uh, when oil prices were were very, very high, you know well over one hundred dollars a barrel, uh, the Russian economy was looking pretty good they were They were pretty flush in money at that point, but now oil prices have dropped considerably from that high point they 're not at their low point of, in recent years, but they 're you know not cer- certainly not what they were and that does that does constrain that cor- the economy
1: it correlates also with kind of political instability we 're going to talk about venezuela Absolutely. later and that 's a good example but there was another event. Uh, eventually, we're going to talk about U.S. Uh, Russian intervention into the economy, into the uh, 2016 election. But there was another event that uh, analysts that uh, um, look at that are Russianologists, so to speak, Kremlinologists. Is that a term they still use now? Kremlinologists. I think anyway, it works. <laughs> um,
0: Sovietologist is gone. But and I think this we can was still pick the
1: up. in the spring of 2016. Panama mm-hmm. Papers were released. Now, the Panama Papers, journalists got a hold of a treasure trove of documents from a Panamanian law firm. Leaked. Leaked, which basically had many, many wealthy people from across the world and showed that they had been basically stashing their loot, so to speak, in various banks across the world in case they had to leave their, flee their country. Well, guess who was on this list? Putin and many of his close inner circle, and we know that this really embarrassed Putin. He was really upset, and those closest to him were really upset because it clearly showed how the corrupt nature of the Russian government under Putin.
0: One, one characteristic of Putin is that it's. It, I mean, there's there's evidence that he is uh, has become extremely wealthy, like. Hard, hard to wrap my brain around at yes. kind of levels of wealth, but it's also uh clear that he doesn't try to let that be very publicly known and tries to keep a very close lid on uh information about exactly where he holds assets and the total value of his wealth um that that i mean he tries to keep that pretty tight yes and, and partly because again, as you noted that there <laughs> he doesn't want to be perceived as corrupt.
1: And with the leaking of these documents then, we know from intelligence sources that it was this event that played a role in terms of Putin and the oligarchs around him wanted to get back. They blamed this on the United States. Now, realistically, journalists leaked this information, but nonetheless, they blamed the United States. And what they wanted to show was that the U.S. democracy was just as corrupt So this was the event that really kind of pushed this effort to undermine the 2016 election and to sow discord and conflict among the American public to embarrass, in a sense, U.S. democracy as well. Now, granted, we started, the Russians started in 2014. Right. But it didn't really ramp up until after this event so clearly he's kind of trying to get back at the United States he took this personal in many ways I think Putin also has uh, thin skin maybe is a good way to put it he's vindictive and this is one way of getting back at the United States and clearly the effort to undermine the 2016 election they made this decision we're going to go all out in that
0: and it's, I think it's also important to note that we're not the only ones, um, that uh, that he's the Russians have targeted European countries with uh, also election interference and, um, you know, and, and it's part of the larger plan of sowing disorder and discord within Western countries, which is, again, part of the larger strategy of pulling down the West to make way for greater Russian prominence.
1: Right. And so... This has all come out in the last week with Special Prosecutor Mueller's and and the the, uh, uh, the indictments against uh, 13 Russians named, uh, in terms of basically giving us a window into the depth, the variety of the ways in which the Russians have attempted to in, did did try to influence. Uh, the the, uh, election in 2016. So
0: let's make sure that everybody um, understands the terminology that that we're using. So um, Special Prosecutor Mueller is um, somebody who was appointed by Trump's FBI. Yes,
1: appointed to look at Russian influence into the election system of the United States. Right. Now, historically, many times, Uh, special prosecutors, they're given pretty much a wide wide range of being able to look at that. Uh, So this is kind of a one piece in that search to try to identify what the Russians actually did. And it's for our first, the public's first glimpse into the actual documents that they've been looking at and the charges against Russia.
0: And so that, that brings up the next term that we used uh, right there, an indictment, which is a formal accusation essentially of having committed crimes and what um, Special Prosecutor Mueller filed with the US District Court um, in Washington DC or for the District of Columbia uh, last week was a 37 page indictment a a list of crimes against um, as as Cliff said specific named individuals this isn't like some Russians (laughs) this is um, you know Maria (laughs) <laughs> like, the, the names are right there. Um, and so, uh, and with that, um, evidence. It is also not That's correct. just, we, yes. you know, these people committed crimes. It is a, again, 37-page discussion of findings and evidence. And there, um,
1: there are three specific charges. One is conspiracy to defraud the United States.
0: Count one.
1: S- count two is conspiracy to commit wire fraud and bank fraud. And then there are several counts basically dealing with identity theft. Uh, You know, Russians would steal the identity of American citizens and use that to create bank accounts, to create PayPal accounts, to set up uh, fake websites, uh, all over social media. So these are the three charges and what this 37-page document does is kind of goes into detail and explains each of those.
0: Right. So a lot of people are concerned about um, identity theft. It's something that most of us, I think, are pretty conscious of. Um, A lot of us have had, um, you know, information stolen from old Yahoo email accounts or from – um the big credit monitoring at data loss a year or so ago or home depot or target a lot of us um i mean i think most americans statistically have have probably been the the victims of data theft um from various organizations and, and so people are pretty conscious of of the risks of identity theft um which can which can cost you um but it's also important to know i think that you know even if the Russians are not you know emptying out our bank accounts, um, this is a, viol- a violation of u s law um, because um, i mean identity theft is illegal anyway but but also it is illegal for foreign actors to put money into u s political
1: you have to efforts. register as a foreign agent right which which obviously they did not they did not so. do.
0: Right, um, and so um, acting in political ways when you are not registered is is illegal. But also, again, just contributing money to a to a political cause within the U.S. is illegal. So they had to set up. I mean, these the social media campaigns and such, which which they was their primary uh, avenue here. Um, th- that costs money. Advertising on social media costs money, and so they had to um, basically come up with fake. US, U.S. looking uh, accounts so that they could funnel uh, money in for this um, for this conspiracy.
1: And they they created this what has since been called the Internet Research Agency which was basically a room full of experts that gave advice yeah. to these folks on how to engage in uh, misinformation disinformation on the various forms of social media. And they did their homework. I mean, these folks yes. began to learn about U.S. politics.
0: They traveled um, to the U.S. to learn to more the about U.S. US learned, politics. They learned about the Electoral
1: yeah. College where to focus their efforts uh, their their references to email among these folks where they talked about we need to focus on purple states so they learned the impact where to fo- in terms of the electoral college how that works so they did their homework in so terms of how to influence uh try at least attempt to influence the american election
0: right so purple states being ones that are divided be- between republicans and democrats and thus could actually be shifted like targeting california which is a very Blue state, a very democratic state, like that was probably going to be a waste of money. But you go into Florida, which could go either Democratic or Republican, um, and that they they might get bang for their buck. Virginia, Colorado, Virginia, exactly. Others,
1: and these were specifically mentioned in the emails that that uh, that uh, uh, special prosecutor Mueller has.
0: Um, yeah, these weren't these weren't pikers. They were very organized. Again, um, according to uh, the. Um, Mueller's indictment document. Um, the Internet Research Agency had um, a graphics department, a data analysis department, a search engine optimization department, um, a, a IT department to deal with their infrastructure, finance department. Like they were, this is a very organized thing, and they were again also very strategic.
1: Yes, and they began to set up um, social media platforms, which appeared to be set up by u s citizens u s persons but clearly it was it it was the Russians, so to speak here, and so they set up uh, platforms known as Blacktivist as the United Muslims of America or the Army of Jesus or secured borders and you notice they pick hot button issues, divisive issues that would play a divisive role in terms of the American public, in terms of the election that reflected the divide between especially between President Trump and 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 Hillary. Uh, so they they created the these groups and used that then to spread information and disinformation throughout all types of social media.
0: So this is obviously a controversial thing. Still today, um, we are still divided. Uh, the the Russians, according to the indictment, uh, tapped into our divisions, tried to amplify our divisions, um, and and uh, you know, uh, either way, uh, we are still divided. So tell me, because I think this is important. Um, this indictment and in, is about Russian actions to try to create division within our political system, and uh, the indictment also indicates that it was uh, trying to benefit Trump and increase the likelihood of his election. But yeah. President Trump is not implicated in this indictment, nor is anyone who actually no, was is, involved with his campaign. That's is important very, to know.
1: This is a legal document, so they're not going to get into the politics, although if you look at the evidence they cite. For example, the specialists, Russian specialists, were instructed to post content that focused on, quote, politics in the USA, end quote, and, and here's the important thing, to use any opportunity to criticize Hillary and the rest except Sanders and Trump. We support them. I find that interesting that, uh, you know, that they were actually supporting Sanders, but it makes sense from you, their perspective. If uh, you
0: divide the Democrats, right, uh, that enhances uh, that enhances the, the support for Trump. Um, I think that it's. Uh, I do think it's important to know that um, the indictment did specify that um, while while they did um, draw in people who were associated with the Trump campaign, um, those people were indicated in the indictment to have been unwitting individuals. Yes. That's the wording from the indictment. So people associated with the Trump campaign, not top campaign officials, um, it, at least it certainly doesn't seem like that, but, um, but like local operatives organizing marches, organizing events. Um, they were, were unwittingly were kind of, yeah, they taken were suckered in, in. they Absolutely. were yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the Russians were very, very good at this. It gives examples of several marches or demonstrations that were organized in the United States in terms of most of them were pro-Trump. There were three marches, interesting, that are cited that on the surface looks like it's pro-Hillary. For example, um, in July of 2016, there was a march in D.C. that was, it was called Support Hillary, Save American Muslims. Now, on the surface, that's a pro-Hillary Hillary. march. But you have to really think about it. First of all, this United Muslims of America, who pushed and spread the news about this this particular march, was created by, by the Russians. And this basically fed into the Trump administration's anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim policies. So it really was a wedge issue. So realistically, if you step back, it wasn't really supporting pro Hillary. In fact, they even hired people to put signs on that said that Sharia law will lead to freedom in the United States. So clearly, on the surface, it looks like a pro Hillary rally but they used it in, in, in terms of to, to play against uh, certain Trump supporters who who were and Trump himself who was was anti-immigration anti-Muslim there were also two other rallies held right after the election Trump wins he's very sensitive about any criticism of how he won and that he wanted to make sure everyone knew he won on his own there were two rallies held immediately after that one in New York called Trump is not my president, and one in Charlotte, which has Charlotte against Trump. Well, both of these were supported by the Russians, and it looks like, again, it's pro-Hillary, but really they're playing into the the Trump insecurities and that he has in terms of of his, his election status and that he did this on his own and his supporters, and the Russians played no role in that. So. Um, In essence, I guess what I'm saying here, when you look at the evidence here, yes, the purpose was to sow discord and conflict in the United States. Now, they could play on conflict that was already there. There's no doubt about that, okay? They didn't have to go too far to divide America, right? But they clearly, if you look at what's happened, these were pro-Trump efforts and anti-Hillary efforts. Uh, And then if you combine that, with other factors. You've got if you compare Hillary's foreign policy versus the Russian compared, versus the Russians compared with Trump's foreign policy versus the Russians. If you look at Russians' contacts with the Trump administration, Trump contacts with Russians, if you look at the timed release of WikiLeaks, which I believe is really just a front for for Russian intelligence, if you look at Putin's stated disdain for Hillary and traditional russian foreign policy and the putin doctrine itself you, you i think you clearly get the picture here that this was designed to try to make sure hillary did not get elected now, i'm not going to argue that this played a role in her defeat okay she made some i think some mistakes that 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 worked against her but clearly this was this was this this whole effort was, was to get someone in the white house that would uh, have a different foreign policy towards Russia.
0: So, Cliff, how is that not just um, a liberal being bitter about losing?
1: Well, when I add up the evidence, okay, when I add up the evidence, as I said, you look at the indictments here, you look at the facts on the ground. Hillary's policy towards Russia was very hard line. Trump's policy was to, we're not going to punish Russia. We're going to begin, we're, we're going to begin to open up with them, even after all Russian attempts to, 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 to oppose the United States. The release of WikiLeaks, Putin's sta- his, his, – I mean, he stated several times he, does not, he did not like Hillary. So my point is, if you, it seems to me, if you look at the facts – that leads you to this conclusion, well, so whether you're a liberal or conservative. We've
0: got the indictment, which we both, which we both obviously referenced and discussed as evidence. But you know, how is this not just a document generated by um, an anti-Trump FBI?
1: Well, the FBI is made up of thirty-five thousand professionals, and the many, most of them are career civil servants. They were there before Trump. They're going to be there after Trump. And their legitimacy is on the line here. Um, do they each have their individual preferences voting for – of course. But these are professionals, and you have to expect them to do to, to a, a, a good job in that way. After all, who's leading these investigations? These are Republican appoint, appointees. These are Trump's own appointees.
0: I would also add, actually, to that um, the fact that um, this indictment grew out of a grand jury process. Um, and a grand jury, most of us, everybody probably, um, is familiar with the concept of a jury, regular citizens who listen to evidence on a case. Um, a grand jury is uh, a slightly different thing. Um, a grand jury doesn't, does not decide guilt or innocence, uh, to be clear, but a, what a grand jury does is a grand jury looks at evidence – Presented by a prosecutor, and decides whether or not that evidence is sufficient to bring formal charges. So and to go to trial. And yes. to go to trial. So this this uh, indictment that Mueller filed. I mean, it was he he presented the evidence in the indictment to a grand jury, and a, and a group of citizens uh, decided that yes, uh, the evidence was compelling enough to. Um, take it to trial. Now realistically um, there's probably never going to be a trial of these 13 named Russians because even though they have been in the US um, their activities again, some of them occurred here, some of them through this um, internet research agency that is in in Russia but but they did come here, some of the people that they talked to, um, they passed themselves off successfully as US Americans um, but they're not going to be coming to the US. Um, This will constrain their travel because if they go to any country uh, With extradition, what, yeah, where they could be, um, they could be extradited to the U.S. to face trial. But, but they are not here, um, and so assuming that they, they travel carefully, they will probably never actually face trial. Um, but it, it, but it is a you know a, a clear accusation of, of criminal activities.
1: So let's 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 take a break here, and we'll come back in just a minute or two. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality.
2: Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end
1: childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org
0: brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political science.
1: Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Cliff Staton, professor of political science and international studies. With my co host, Gene Abshire, professor of political science and international studies. And we have just uh, talked a little bit about Russia, so we thought we would uh, change geography here. If you'll remember, last week we talked about Africa uh, with our former student and uh, Dr. Sarah Watkins, uh, who gave us a good overview of of Africa. But the interesting thing is that some of the things we talked about have. uh, change since then. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So, Jean, would you like to maybe, maybe let, let's visit South Africa, maybe?
0: Yes, it is a it is a dynamic uh, continent. As as sarah said and indeed before before the sunset on our show last wednesday uh things were changing so south africa uh, last week we were we were looking at uh south african president jacob zuma being uh pressured to step down um from the presidency and that happened um after the international power hour <laughs> last wednesday jacob zuma resigned um pressured out by his own political party uh the african national congress and they very quickly the the parliament um so their their political system is very different from ours their parliament elects the president um so it's it's sort of like their parliament uh, acts as an electoral college or it's in that sense more like a, a um, parliamentary system than our presidential system so the president uh, so uh jacob zuma uh, resigns and within within hours um the the uh, head of the Af- the new head of the African National Congress who'd been um, chosen as head uh, just within the last couple of months um, Cyril Ramaphosa is his name was uh, became became South Africa's new president. Now this I think is a good thing. Um, this is uh, South Africa has its problems um, certainly and Zuma's uh, Zuma being forced out because of corruption was you know not something that was encouraging to a lot of people um, in terms of of South Africa's development as a as a democracy but but Zuma being forced out through uh, standard legitimate constitutional means um, and being replaced in that manner um, that is a that is a good mark and kind of an affirmation for um, South Africa's developing democracy and it's thanks um, largely to um, a news media that really kept on him and you know monitored uh, corrupt behavior, civil society, um, non-governmental groups that um, you know also really pushed for clean government and transparency, and then legal institutions um, pushing the African National Congress to uh, to basically you know behave well and to, to and to and keep their house, clean up their own house essentially.
1: And, and Ramaphosa mm-hmm. has a good reputation for the most part. Uh, he was uh, he came out of the. Uh, union movement, the mines in South Africa, that's where he first as a union leader became very famous. And then as South Africa transitioned to democracy in 91, 92, 93, 94, he was one of the lead negotiators in that process. So he's fairly well known.
0: Yeah, he's also um, been in business in the intervening time. He's actually one of the wealthiest men on the African continent. Um, He was a uh, union leader in the mining industry and then he went into the mining industry. Yes. But I don't I don't think he's typically regarded as having, you know, acted in a corrupt way or anything like that. So that's that's good. South Africa. He's got he's got new. He's got problems to face as as the new president Um, combating corruption, which is was not just with Jacob Zuma um, will be an issue. Um, They've got a 30 percent unemployment rate in South Africa, and that's higher among young blacks and blacks are, you know, by far a a strong majority of the population who have historically uh, been very marginalized uh, economically and in terms of of political and social power. Um, So that's an issue.
1: Also there is is – as the economy of South Africa goes, so does the economy of whole Southern Africa. Yes, I mean it is the the linchpin of that whole region. It is. It's the second, second biggest economy important.
0: on the entire continent. Right. Um, so it's important. Yeah. Um, uh, near near, uh, near South Africa is Zimbabwe, which we also <coughs> mentioned uh, in passing last week um, as a place also experiencing leadership change. Um, there was a coup last fall and. Uh, the new President Managagua uh, has been talking about um, having elections this summer and um, uh, having you know like actual democratic elections. Things got a little bit trickier potentially last week um, in that the really the one person who was seen as as somebody. Who could be a credible contender? Really, really the leading opposition appoint, uh, opponent uh, was uh, Morgan Changarai and also last Wednesday uh, he passed away from colon cancer. Um, he was the head of the Movement for Democratic Change. He had um, he had been Prime Minister of Zimbabwe, so he had political experience. That was in a negotiated deal um, to uh, after a contested election. Um, but what he did not have was a sort of groomed prepared succession within his movement for democratic change and just in the last week we have seen a lot of divisions break out
1: he represented really the only substantive opposi- opposition right. to robert mugabe's 37 year rule in zimbabwe right. and so with him gone you're correct uh there's no one really to oppose ZANU-PF in the elections and uh you know this is this has been a one party uh state for many years for the most part and it looks like th- this could be this could continue with this with his death
0: yeah it's it's not helpful that um that, that, again their one prominent opposition leader uh has passed and now uh his party is fighting amongst amongst themselves uh for control of the party and prominence which
1: kind of leads us to uh, <laughs> another country um in Africa, one we did not did not talk about last week, but clearly a country in crisis, and that's yes. Ethiopia.
0: Exactly. Um, another another place with uh, sudden leadership change last week, <laughs> within the last week, and uh, also a lot of, of infighting and um, power struggle at the top. Ethiopia uh, has been ruled since 1991 by a coalition of four nominally ethnic parties called the Ethiopian People's Revolution revolutionary democratic front that's a mouthful um and as i said they have been um in power single-handedly since 1991 um and they have um they've had a lot of protest against their government for the last three years um to, and it's that's actually been based within uh, Two groups that are in that ruling coalition, um, the the strongest party within that um, that coalition was actually a very small one. They represented about six percent of the population, and two other uh, groups within that four-party coalition uh, are are actually among the largest groups within uh, Ethiopia. And so, some people thought, like, well, we're we're big. We should have more prominence and more power within this this ruling coalition. Um, and so, there has been um, for years, a lot of agitation um, for change in government, and and there has been some. Uh, the, a lot of
1: anti-government protests beginning about 2015, correct? Yeah,
0: 2014, 2015. Um, in, in 2012, um, <laughs> Mele Sanawi, uh, wh- who was the president from 1991 until 2012, died, and uh, then um, uh, President Hala Merriam took over, and he has been in power then from 2012 until last week. And he was not – not seen really ever as a very effective leader. He was considered sort of a placeholder um, and, and not strong. And this last week, he actually, in response to um, all the unrest that, is, that has been happening, and especially in, in just in recent months, it's, it's um, gotten more intense, um, President Haley Merriam stepped down. Just very abruptly and unexpectedly, and said, You know, I hope that this will facilitate a better path forward. Um, But that's a tricky thing because. Basically, what he leaves behind is a real power struggle within
1: he creates a power vacuum he
0: does create a power, power vacuum, and we've talked about those before and how they're not helpful um and so and so he leaves within this uh governing coalition uh, a lot of a lot of conflict they've had, they've had uh, thousands and thousands of people arrested as political prisoners. Um, they've been trying to release those folks out of jail to try to mitigate some of, the, some of the points of conflict. They've had more than 6,000 political prisoners released since January, but the protests continue.
1: Well, let's um, switch geography again. Moving uh, fast. <laughs> once again, um, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel, one of the closest allies of the United States historically, very very close relations under every president since since 1948, uh, for that matter, and so there have been indictments issued against Prime Minister Netanyahu. Um, Jean, would you care to comment on that?
0: Yeah, um, this is uh, there have been allegations of of corruption relating to Netanyahu for some years, and um, uh, last week uh, the police in Israel announced a recommendation that they presented to the Attorney General that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu be indicted on charges of bribery, fraud, and breach of trust for two unrelated cases um, in which he is uh, Netanyahu is alleged to have uh, inappropriately given associates political favors. Um, and this heated up uh, even more yesterday, actually, when um, seven Israelis, people in, in uh, Netanyahu's innermost circle, were arrested also on corruption charges for um, intervening with regulators to help an Israeli communications uh, company that's run by a very close friend of Prime Minister Netanyahu, and the exchange for that was favorable coverage in the news of Netanyahu and his wife.
1: Apparently, one of um, Prime Minister's cabinet members, minister, the former director of communications, has kind of turned state evidence against this group. Uh, so it looks like, uh, well, I guess we never know what's going to happen, but uh, clearly there, there's evidence there of, of, some, of some wrongdoing going on.
0: Yeah, Netanyahu's in a, in a kind of a, a, a difficult position. He's obviously a very prominent uh, figure within Israeli politics and has been for decades. He's been in and out of the prime ministership a couple of times. Um, but he is the head of a very fragile coalition government. Um, uh, in Israel, in, with a parliamentary system, they don't have a single party dominating the executive. There's not a dominant
1: majority party,
0: right? They, it's a very, very fragmented parliament with lots of different, of, of lots of different small parties, um, and, and Netanyahu has to has to basically constantly negotiate and um, and manage manage this group of parties yes. who've agreed to support his his governance. Exactly, um, and they have it's not a it's not necessarily a tight coalition they have competing viewpoints within themselves and um, that can be a real balancing act
1: and quite often sometimes lead to the smaller party parties playing a bigger role than they probably should in terms of Israeli foreign policy
0: right and this group tends to be pretty conservative um, on a lot of issues um, so that that probably pulls Netanyahu farther to the right
1: well yeah. One of the areas we haven't talked about, it's an interesting area of the world, uh, you know, is is Gaza, the Gaza Strip. Tell us about Gaza Strip, Jean. Uh,
0: so Gaza is an area that um, is populated by Palestinians. Um, it is considered Palestinian territory. Um, Israel used to have uh, settlements there. They pulled those settlements out um, a fair number of years ago. Uh, and now it is just, Pal- just Palestinians, but Israel controls all access to Gaza, um, except Uh, where the Gazans use tunnels to bring things in from Egypt or to take things out um, into Israel. And unfortunately, what they take out into Israel, and this is not a majority of people in Gaza by any means, it doesn't take a very large group of of terrorists to cause a lot of trouble. Um, Right. And so um, this last weekend, uh, through a tunnel from Gaza into Israeli territory, um, it seems that Gazans planted a flag, a Palestinian flag, which drew Israeli soldiers, um, and then there was an explosive device that went off seriously. Um, injuring two of the f- two Israeli soldiers um, and and more more mildly injuring two others. And
1: there was also a rocket fired into southern Israel. There was kind of a yes. There was
0: a there was a back and forth and the Israelis responded with tank fire on a Palestinian observation post near the explosion and then airstrikes and then there were the rockets and then there was more tank fire from Israel and a second wave of air attacks. This is the bloodiest. Fighting between Israel and Gaza um, since uh, a seven-week war in the summer of, of 2014.
1: And just to remind people, Gaza, under the Oslo Accords, is part of a future Palestinian state. Okay, yeah. Now it's separate. You'd have to somehow under international law create a road that would go from the West Bank to Gaza. But technically under the Palestinian national authority, but in reality governed primarily through Hamas, which, uh, of course, the United States deems as a terrorist organization.
0: Right. Right. Um, so, this is a, a tricky situation to deal with, um, and and again, it's it's taken a violent um, turn. Uh, the other thing that happened with Israel, and I think I'll just kind of say this, and then and then I think we'll take a quick break. Um, Israel had a mix-up relating to or a not a not a mix-up is in a confusion, but a dust-up maybe would be the better word uh, relating to the Syrian situation. Um, since February third, we talked about Syria a few weeks ago. Um, since February third, the aircraft of four different countries have been downed over Syria. Um, There was a Russian jet hit by Syrian opposition fighters. Um, Turkey says Kurdish fighters shot down one of its helicopters. An Israeli F-16 was downed by uh, the Syrian regime after a jet carried out, after um, Israeli jets carried out air raids in Syria, and then Israel says it shot down an Iranian drone entering Israeli airspace from Syria. All this is just within the last few weeks. So things are really bubbling with Syria, and we'll take a break and then come back and talk just a bit about that, and then Venezuela after a minute.
2: When is the best time to talk to your family about staying in touch during a disaster? When floodwaters reach your door? when wildfires are engulfing the edge of your neighborhood, or an earthquake is destroying buildings, when a tornado is tearing through town, or a hurricane strikes, or is the best time, perhaps, today. During a disaster, you may not be able to stay in touch with your family or friends as easily as you think. And it's not always as simple as using your cell phone. That's why now is the time to take action. Go to ready.gov communicate and make your emergency plan today. Don't wait. Communicate. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council.
0: The, inter- the International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international studies.
1: Welcome back to the International Power Hour. I'm Cliff Staten, professor of political science and international studies, with my colleague, Jean Abshire, who's also professor of political science and international studies. Gene, uh, before we move to Venezuela, let's talk a little bit about Syria. We talked a little bit about Syria a few weeks ago and how complex this civil war is, and it may have even gotten more complex this past week. Could you maybe <laughs> talk about that?
0: Yeah, I think it did. It's it's at some point you think it might max out on the complexity, yet it it seems to just keep building. Um, so there is a uh, Kurdish enclave. Kurd. The Kurds are an ethnic group um, that are found in Syria, in neighboring Turkey, in Iraq, um, in Iran. They're scattered out across a bunch of countries. Um, they are a they are a stateless nation. Um, they have a a clear national identity um, they have no country of their own, but they sure would like one um, and that's a that's a key point here and as 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 context um so there is a Kurdish enclave um in Syria. Right up by uh, the Turkish border, and this en- enclave is called Afrin, and it has been basically controlled by Kurdish militias in Syria uh, since I think 2012. The Kurd, uh, sorry, the the Syrian government um, has has just basically um, yielded that area to um, the to Kurdish fighters who have been fighting off. Um, ISIS, ISIS or and ISIL, yes. Islamic mm-hmm. Islamist militants. Um, and uh, the, the Syrian government and military basically just let the Kurds fight. The, the Kurds have been super effective. The YPG has been super effective fighters um, against. And the United States
1: has provided them with much assistance us. because we realize they played a major role in, in, in helping to defeat ISIS.
0: Yeah, these are our folks. We've yes. been helping them. Um, however, Turkey, right across the border uh, from these these uh, Kurdish fighters in uh, Afrin, uh, the, Kur- the 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 Turks uh, see these Kurds as affiliated with Turkish Kurds, um, the the PKK as they're Sifu. known.
1: Kurdish Workers Party,
0: which is considered by the Turks and has been considered by the U.S. to As be a, a terrorist, terrorist group, group. exactly. Absolutely. Yes. So uh, the Turks have been alarmed by the success of the Kurds. Um, they have again uh, driven out ISIS from this area,
1: and um, I think they fear that this momentum would lead to more demands for the creation of a Kurdish state. Because
0: now they control territory yes. and when you have territory you can demand a state and the Turks really want to avoid that because a large portion of eastern Turkey um, is populated by Kurdish people and so uh, the Turks uh, began cr- began attacking into Syrian territory to take on these Kurds um, and uh, I think it was probably not likely that the Kurds would be able to uh, effectively fight off the Turkish military right. um, and so in what was seen as a, as, as a pretty surprising surprising move and, and there was some uncertainty for some days partly because of, of what the Kurds themselves were saying. Um, the Kurds seem to have invited in the Syrian government or the Syrian military or a militia affiliated with them um, to come in and fight the, the Turks in this area called Afrin. And this um, the Syrian um, military unit militia uh, arrived yesterday in Afrin. And so now we see um, the potential for for Turkey and Syria fighting it out in a border region.
1: And there seems to be some evidence, at least interviews with several people on the ground, that the Turks actually fired on the Syrians and there was return fire. Now, yeah. what's that say about NATO.
0: Uh, that's could potentially be a little bit tricky because uh, Turkey is a NATO partner partner with the U. S. That's and a collective defense arrangement. That's right. The deal there is, if one of if one member of our alliance is attacked, the others will respond to to uh, to stave off that attack and to to set things right again. Although Turkey is attacking into Syrian territory, and so the Syrians have an interest, even though they haven't really controlled that, the, the Syrian government hasn't really controlled that area in some years, they nevertheless have an interest in protecting their sovereignty because that is internationally recognized Syrian territory.
1: And I think it's possible, and maybe one day we can ask Ken Stammerman, who might be better informed on this but uh, this effort might be an effort by the Syrian government to stave off demands for uh, more autonomy by the Kurds as well. They also in Syria. are not
0: interested in a Kurdistan. No right. one is interested. No state is interested in a Kurdistan because that would mean losing territory, and losing territory means losing power. Um, the other big news story out of out of the Syrian conflict um, in the last days is Syrian government attacks on a rebel-held um, Islamist uh, rebel-held area close to the capital, Damascus. Damascus. It's basically a suburb of Damascus um, in an area called Ghouta. Um, And this has been brutal. Uh, The death toll... um, Predominantly civilians Uh, just in the last literally couple of days is estimated to be 250 people. Um, Reports are that they are targeting um, hospitals, medical clinics, even schools. Uh, The United Nations said that the situation is, is, quote, spiraling out of control. uh, the UN organization that looks out for the interests of children uh, yesterday said that children were in terrible peril. Um, this is an area that also has uh, has seen chemical attacks um, in in past years from oh, 2013, actually. Um, so the um, the Syrian government has been struggling over this area for quite a while, um, but it seems like they are really using um, harsh tactics that are not just hitting uh yeah. islamist rebels but are really hitting civilians in we a look at deadly way
1: the future of syria is really a bleak future i mean even yeah. if you do have a stable government reassert control over the, the cost of rebuilding this country not only in terms of human cost but also the physical cost yeah. uh this is going to affect syria for decades De- in generations and, yeah. and, and and syria may not ever recover from this yeah. It's a it's a
0: it's a human tragedy. Speaking of human tragedies, uh, speaking of making a situation that's hard to recover from, tell me about Venezuela.
1: Venezuela. Uh, Most Americans, uh, we know two things about Venezuela. We think of Hugo Chavez and we think of oil, uh, unless you vacation there uh, along the coast. But uh, Venezuela is a country. Not many
0: people are vacationing there now. No,
1: they're not. Venezuela is a country that, uh, from my perspective, is ready to collapse. You have a political system. President Nicolas Maduro, who was Chavez's successor, uh, basically run the economy into the ground. Now, you have to remember, Venezuela is an oil country, and oil countries and the bulk of their revenues come from oil, and so oil goes through a a boom-burst cycle boom-bust cycle. And so during a bust period, which is in the last few years, typically that correlates with political instability. And the same can be true of what's going on in Venezuela. But mismanagement, his move towards more authoritarianism, the economy is in a shambles. Let me give you some examples. For example, they're heavily in debt. They just missed a $141 billion debt payment so they are technically in default and they have no way to make this payment oil production has almost come to a stop listen to this and this is something americans can't comprehend the imf says that international monetary fund i'm sorry yes the inflation rate in venezuela this year will hit thirteen thousand percent now americans get upset when it hits three percent four percent Think of this, you get a paycheck and you have to spend it immediately because within the hour it's lost value.
0: If you can find anything to spend it on, if you can find
1: that's right. One of the food issues, food shortages, is, yes. there's looting. Even the wealthiest Venezuelans are having difficulty. So what has happened then is obviously Venezuelans are leaving the country. They're going to both Colombia and Brazil. Now, the Brazilian border is more um, less inhabited, and President um, um, Michelle Temer has basically said, we're going to take you and we're going to move you to interior. We can p- provide services for you. Okay, so the Brazilian government has responded to this. Most of the folks have gone to Colombia. Now, when we think of Colombia, most of us think of drugs, right? And the cartels and so on. Well, Colombia, interestingly enough, already had a refugee problem prior to this because Colombia, for 50 years, fought an insurgency known as the FARC, the Revolutionary, Army of, Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, that civil war has just come to an end. Well, many Colombians had fled to Venezuela to escape that war. Now that war's over. So now those Colombians are actually coming back from Venezuela. So now you've got the Venezuelan crisis and Venezuelans are pouring into the border of Colombia. And so last year, for example, uh, Colombia took in over five hundred thousand. These are legal people coming from Colum- from, from Venezuela to Colombia.
0: Not counting people who have not people. friends or family. That's who, correct. Who, who they are can coming. flee to and thus are not going to be counting. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Colombia has asked the UN and major aid agencies to help them. Many of them are beginning to step in, but you're talking about at least five hundred thousand, some estimates of a million. So The refugee problem is on the par of Syrians going to Europe in terms of this number, and this is kind of the best kept secret in the world today.
0: Yeah, um, reports out earlier—excuse me, earlier this week—suggested that the Venezuelan refugee crisis could actually surpass the Syrian refugee crisis, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. Um, It's been in the news a lot. That is a that is a serious crisis, and if, if Venezuela surpasses that, that is another human tragedy. Um, It looks like we are just about to the end of our time for today's International Power Hour. Um, We are going to actually uh, put a post on our Facebook page. If you haven't liked the International Power Hour Facebook page, we would encourage you to do so. Um, we're going to be putting a post up later t- today in which you can um, give suggest us suggestions topics. for topics that you might be interested in. So we're not going to announce a topic for next week yet. Um, you're going to have to look at our Facebook post for that, um, but feel free to go in there and, su- and suggest some topics. In the interim, uh, thank you for listening to the International Power Hour. We hope you have enjoyed Enjoyed the last hour with us.